welcome to our first ever FinTech in a Flat show. And Ollie Judge came up with that, and I love that title. This is a special edition of FinTech Insider. We're coming to you live from the Ice Tower Condominiums in downtown Toronto. I'm Sam Mall. I'm the managing partner of North America for 11FS. I'm joined by both Michael and Ollie from our 11FS media team. We're in Toronto, we're attending the Inatribe event, which is my personal favorite part of the annual Cybos Conference, one of the largest banking conferences in the world. We've had a great time so far. We've interviewed several of the speakers and panelists at Inatribe, and I had the opportunity to speak yesterday morning on banking and the FinTech space itself. We have several friends of ours in the flat along with us. They've shared some pretty good food, all in all. Ollie ordered mozzarella sticks. That's a long story. He wanted to know if there was a Chick-fil-A in Toronto. That's another long story. There's not. <laughs> we are also drinking a little bit, which is, it works because it's past three o'clock in the afternoon. In no particular order, let's go through our guests. So first we have Dion Lyle. He's the VP and head of FinTech for Capgemini. Hello, Dion. How you doing? Good, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Dion's drink of choice is bullet bourbon with, what is in that? Ginger ale. No, what's the thing floating? Orange. I, I went radical. I don't understand. All right. Alongside him, we have April Rudin. She is the founder and CEO of the Rudin Group. Hello, April. Hey, Sam. What's up? You're my date tonight for the Steve Miller concert. Right? Of course. Who Which I will leave at music? like 930 because that's late for me. And you're drinking... I swear to God, what are you drinking? I'm drinking the Absolute Raspberry, which is just a facsimile for the Fago Red Pop that we share in Detroit. She's 15 years old. All right. And next to her, we have Joe Lang. Joe Lang is a blockchain legend who has actually joined IBM. How long ago? Six Joe? months. Six months now. Um, share title, I like this. You're an offering leader for IBM Universal Payments and Marketing. Markets. Markets. That is, does that fit on a business card? I haven't tried. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> we'll work on that. Um, I love what Joe's drinking, though. Joe, the classic Maker's Mark and Ginger Ale, which I love. Along with Joe from IBM is Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Nice to see you. She's drinking water. I don't get it. Um, last but not least, the Yoda, if you will, of FinTech is Mike Siegel. Hello, Mike. Hello. Great voice, Mike. Isn't that great? You are Stunning. All right, Mike. Bringing sexy back. It is. Bringing sexy back to podcasts. Yeah. That's right. Mike heads up 500 FinTechs, which is part of 500 startups. He has no voice left. He was uh, kind of ill yesterday. So let's dive into this. Let's go to our first topic. We're here in Toronto. We're attending Cybos um, in, in a tribe. And actually, Ripple has a conference going on called Swell just down the road. So, Dion, I have to ask you, all of us are conference warriors. We do this. It's October, right? This is what we do. Next week, we'll be at Money 2020. Um, we've all been on the road. How do you look at this conference? What have you enjoyed? What has stood out for you so far? I think we're into the second day now. So I think two things. One, <clears throat> there's an amazing speaker yesterday at Inno Tribe, a, uh, an admiral from the U.S. Navy whose last name escapes me, but I believe her first name was Michelle. She talked about pioneering journeys. And although she was talking from a female empowerment perspective, which was awesome, I should also point out she was African-American. So for her to be an admiral in the U.S. Navy, even in this day and age, is stunning. But as she talked about the pioneering journeys, it really meant a lot to me as far as those of us in innovation and what we have to go through and how we have to overcome her together. That was one. Uh, the second piece was actually the swell event. I thought that was really interesting um, because I walked over and it was uh, Ripple's chief counsel guiding everyone to the buses to go over to the swell event. And I said, ah, oh, that's brilliant. You use counsel for, for bus duty. That's cool. For conference hacking. Well, no, it was explained to me. It was chief counsel for a reason because you're standing in front of Cybos and there was a little bit of tension between Cybos and Ripple on this issue. Who would have guessed? So long story short, they had their chief counsel in front of the building guiding people to the event because just in case there was tension. So it was rather interesting. Yes. Instead of a bodyguard? Yeah, exactly. Instead of a body. But this is Canada. Who says fintechs don't understand regulation? Exactly. Well said, Mike. Well, I found it interesting. We, we noticed today, the team, because we went to interview the CEO of Ripple um, over at the conference. And so we walked over to Cybos and all the black cars with the Ripple logos yes. were sitting there. And I found that to be rather funny and a big middle finger uh, yes. to the industry, which I thought was quite enjoyable. Mike, I'm going to come to you last. Uh, Joe, I'm curious, is this your first Cybos? No, actually, it's my second Cybos. Uh, last time I was here, my company, Epifite, won the Cybos Inatribe competition. Uh, I like to say, maybe because I'm millennial, that I and 
Idan Yago, the founder of Epify, brought blockchain and cryptocurrency to Cybos uh, in 2014. Since then, I have not been back. This is the first time. It's very different coming in as a startup that no one understands to IBM, where you have a massive booth, coffee all day, every day, anytime you want, um, and everyone standing around trying to make meetings with you. Um, so it's been very different. And also, at the time Richard Brown was at IBM, he was my advisor to our startup, and now I'm at IBM, and he's at R3. So we've it's it, yeah, the dichotomy of what you just talked about makes me smile because a lot of the fintech companies had these tiny side booths that are bare. Unless you turned your head and coughed, you wouldn't know they were there. <laughs> but they paid a fortune for. And then you go to the main exhibition room, and like IBM, I'm sure. And good job, Hannah. It is, I don't know what you sunk, half a million into these booths. They're bigger than a lot of people's homes. And, and Cybos and Money 2020 are about the only two that go to that length for it, where when you go through the exhibition hall, you know, you're seeing Wells Fargo, you're seeing IBM, Deloitte, the and major And they're not players. just competing on uh, products. They're competing on coffee, spread, beer. I mean, yeah. Deutsche Bank, I think, was pulling out the champagne at about noon. I missed that. I did not. <laughs> well, I was at the SAP champagne cocktail hour in the booth, so I, I missed the, the um, Deutsche Bank one, but I was across the hall. This is your first Cybos, right? Like a virgin, right? I'm Cybos for the very first time, uh, but I'm certainly a conference veteran. So seeing these big booths and, and, you know, 20 years in marketing, so seeing these big booths and all of these things for me are not really... Um, uh, thrilling and exciting. Um, you know, it's table stakes for a lot of these firms to just be there. Uh, some of them probably don't have great messages and don't have anything to say, but they're just here. Yeah, so that's what I feel about Cybos. And, and have you gone to any of the Inner Tribe side of it? And the reason I ask, yeah, yeah Inner Tribe is interesting because it was started by Swift. It started like Matteo Rizzi, Costa Peric, uh, Peter Vander Auer, and, uh, and Nick, yeah, Notorious, who all of them, by the way, are not with Swift anymore. They're all doing something else, which I find interesting. So this was Kevin Johnson's first year really taking the reins and driving it forward. I do like that Kevin brought in, I believe the Admiral's last name was Herman? Howard. 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 She was outstanding. Uh, really good, polished Excellent. speaker. And I thought she did a good job. I like the idea of bringing outside industry, if you will to come and speak because um, you kind of need that little bit of a refresh, I think. So I, I do like that aspect of it. Did anybody go to any of the main sessions? Well, I was just going to make just one comment quickly on that because I think you touched on something really important here, um, which is in a tribe, Cybos, Money 2020, what does this all look like? Uh, I mean, the reason InnoTribe is, was started, right, because Cybos is an old sort of staid financial services conference. So how are you going to innovate? You're going to bring something new to it, um, which is, you know, sort of an offshoot, but not really integrated into the main conference. So if we look down the pike, what do we see, right, is that integration of financial services conferences moving down so that there are traditional financial services and fintechs and everything similar to Asian Financial Forum, which... Um, you can see that. Well, so I've been involved with Inatribe since 2008. Uh, I helped form the Inatribe Startup Challenge. And what Inatribe was trying to do originally is create a bridge between the existing financial services ecosystem and the fintech startup ecosystem as it was evolving. Mm -hmm. I think the, what the role that Inatribe has played is if you look on that show floor and all the, all the large firms that have set up their booths and all of that, is most of their day-to-day gives no visibility into the richness, the effervescence of the startup ecosystem. So I think that's that's what you see going on within a tribe. And I think that's why you see a lot of new ideas coming from, you know, through the in the tribe channel as opposed to the main stage. Yeah, and I like to see the graduates is a poor choice of word, alumni. How's that? from in a tribe that have come out because Joe's won, right? And hand just won. I was just going to say, not only uh, was my company a winner, but our partner who we just announced our uh, cross-border payments and FX platform was the 2013 winner who I met at Cybos the year I won. That's what we tried to put together with, with Startup Challenge. So there's a value in, and, right? Well, so we, we don't track it very closely, but estimate by virtue of press announcements, the in a tribe startup Alumni have done about 650 million in transactions with Swift member institutions as a result of meeting 
through in a tribe. I do want to circle back to what you started though with Joe, which was when you came here, it was, and I think if I remember right at Cybos, it was, uh, they actually ran a session called Blockchain, New Kids on the Block. It was Singapore, packed out, right? A million suit. That's the one thing about Cybos, it's suit heaven, right? This is where it's okay to be a banker in a suit, unlike Money 2020, where they wear pressed jeans with their t-shirt in a suit. Joe laughed because that is true, right? You still know who the bankers are. Um, but at Cybos, everybody's plastered in a suit. But yeah, I do find it interesting that blockchain really is front and center, I think. At the conference, one of the news stories that was out about Cybos was, it, it is Swift that's behind it. So we are talking a legacy payments rail, right? Or solution that's out there. Um, so Swift is a sponsorship for it. And they were on the main stage yesterday and the press release that came out on this was while they're on the main stage and one of the head executives of Swift was talking about what's happening well, with cryptocurrencies and the unpredictability of it and uncertainty of it. He actually did, I kind of laugh when people do this now, <clears throat> the screen switched to an image of the tulip bulbs, right? <laughs> oh, there you go. I know that's so getting overplayed, but the audience died laughing because it's an audience, 90% of bankers, right? That look at that story or myth or however you want to take it of the tulip market in the Netherlands when it comes to blockchain. And yet I guarantee you there wasn't a session that talked about blockchain that wasn't packed out. Did you present, Joe? Uh, we, I did not present, but we did hold a panel hosted by my boss, Jesse Lund, with uh, the CEO of ClickX, Rob Bell, Chuck Hounsel, uh, SCP of Payments, um, Ram Kamaraju uh, of CLS, and uh, Jed McCaleb from Stellar. Uh, which, you know, I like to think went really well. Um, it was packed as well. I heard there was overflow. And we're really pleased with the response that we've gotten so far. So interestingly enough, don't disagree with any of that, but we, um, Jim and I had a session this morning. We released our payments uh, report that we do every year with BNP. Old school payments, going digital, cash is still being used, et cetera, et cetera. Packed house. So payments still matter. <laughs> you know, the uh, old school money still matters. People still want to see what's happening around the world. Obviously, a lot of movement in China and so on. We, we could all guess what the trends are. But I was surprised to see Packed House for an old school payments report about where are payments going, what's happening by region. And so it was interesting. Not the latest, greatest AI, blockchain, et cetera, but just where are payments going? What are they doing? Well, we're, we're and, and Mike, you correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I think we're well down the path, right? Um, as far as fintech, the relationship with banking, right? Are we, are we beyond? It's going to completely disrupt everything that's happened. I think that term, if you say disrupt on stage now, do you get laughed at? Or I think for the most part. Well, I've learned the messaging to say enable or disrupt. But Ooh, that's because you right. You sound like Mark Simpson's sister. That's right. right now. <laughs> <laughs> Then you've been doing this for a while, but Joe yeah. nodded. He doesn't look like it. No. I, I think that um, it, you can say it if you are truly building something disruptive. Don't call yourself a disruptive if you're building the Uber of X. You're not. You're copying a model. Well, think how much we've moved this year. If, if you're actually on stage saying, I'm the Uber of, you're a moron. Yeah. No, I want to pick up on that. I mean, using words like disrupt or Uber of anything really are not doing service to any fintech, not doing service to any uh, big banks, not doing service to, to even end consumers that are buying these products or looking at these products. The problem is that nobody really has uh, that sort of deep down understanding of what they do and the messaging so that people really understand what they do. So uh, even blockchain or Bitcoin, I find all of these things to be really cliched. Some of the use cases, and that's what I think gives um, rise to things like payments, Dion, because everyone knows what it is and they understand what it is and they grasp onto it and it doesn't need anything they else. They make their money on doing payments. Exactly. And, and, and that's what drives a full house. Uh, the one thing that was interesting, and I guess if, he, if anyone listens to this podcast, they'll hear it. One of the senior banking execs on the panel that we held was big fan of explaining that payments is on a race to zero in terms of pricing. <laughs> He's dead on right. He's dead on wrong. Oh, I'm like, right. good. No, nope. first one. Dead Here on we right. go. So in certain markets, in certain corridors, developed markets, that is true. But then why is the IMF saying that the cost of global payments has risen 0.3% since 2014 and is up to 30% of a payment in some corridors? 
I think that's by virtue. I, I don't know, right? I've not read the report, but if I had to guess, it's about the penetration, the cost of, of getting the that's infrastructure still payments, to penetrate. Because if you can't get access to it, you might as, the payment doesn't exist. So to me, there, yes, the machinery, the actual data, the actual ability to send a message, sure, that's cheap as you know anything now. It's basically the same as sending an email, but then it's sending an email. You haven't sent anything. What, where's the value? And that was a pun, by the way. He was um, laughing, but he has no voice left. So you just didn't hear it. It was silent. Um, so where's the value? It's like, why does it matter if you have clearing and settlement together or apart? Why do some of these solutions that have come out? Swift is only clearing and messaging. Ripple, as an example, is generally settlement. Or, you know, the asset is settlement. Bitcoin is settlement. So... The power and, you know, this is where the design of what we built comes in and I can go into that separately is you need to put the two together. So I like to think of the fact that the real cost of payments comes from tagging the messaging and the reason for the payment to the payment. Even the clearinghouse, I had a client tell me this is true today. Systemic risk has been increasing due to the increase in fintechs, not because fintechs are doing anything inherently bad. It's great. But it's actually harder for the banks to bank them because if they don't have their payments and their books in order, the bank has to somehow figure out how to explain to the regulator what the fintech was doing. And they're at risk. So if they can't do it. Or the clearinghouse says they even have to send back domestic payments because they can't figure out where they tie and then they can't keep it. So going back to our whole design around the way we believe we're changing the payments transforming the economics is by tying the messaging to the payment if you think about payments, it's like the circulatory system. You can't live without your heart pumping blood to the places it needs to. The aorta drives the oxygen or the money and the veins, you know, take it back for replenishment. It's sort of like, you know, an accounts payable and receivable. If a small business doesn't matter if the money might be coming, if their electric bill goes out and they can't pay it, they have bigger problems. So it doesn't, you know, so it's making sure that that money gets there when it can and that they know when it is. And maybe they can call up their electricity firm and say, hey, you know, I know my payment's coming in two days. Here, so here's a question for you two, because you're both, Dion, when I say you two, the, the two. Don't tell. I'm going with the two bald guys sitting next to each that. other. I love it. Right. So 500 startups, 500 fintechs, largest. Most active. Fintech. Most active fintech investor. 220 portfolio companies okay. in 60 countries. And then Dion, fintech investment for Capgemini. So this, again, we're going full circle. We've been talking about blockchain and really how, well, here's my opinion. When it comes to Cybos, when it's going to come to money 2020 next week, this is the central topic that most people will show up and dive into. The whole Swell conference that we're having down the road with Ripple is all based around that. So uh, two questions for you before we move on. One, do you really think within the industry, so within, I'll, I'll take the banking side, do you think there's a, a significant or a, at least a, um, a level of understanding of what blockchain is as compared with cryptocurrencies, for one, and the different protocols that are out there? And then two, do you think we have an industry on the flip side, on the fintech side, where we have a billion people saying, I'm an expert, and they're full of shit? I already know the answer to the second one. Because you're laughing, and you know I'm right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that think they're full of shit. Do you think the ones that say, I'm an expert, and you're, bullshit, and you're full of shit actually know what they're talking about? No, I no. don't, unfortunately. I think <laughs> the people that on their, on their LinkedIn or their Twitter feed says, I'm a guru, need to go away. I'm going to disagree. Good. Here's why. And I'm going to disagree with your disagreement while I so drink my beer. So I can't say the name of the company because I might have once been employed by them, but I did an evaluation of a payments company and their value per enterprise value per employee was in the $30,000, $35,000 per employee range. Stripe was in the twelve dollars to $16 million range. The Stripe brothers, the Coalition brothers, knew nothing about payments. They knew everything about technology. They came into payments and did a fantastic job, created a ton of enterprise value, changed the way the game is played with no knowledge. Why, why were they able to do that? Because they weren't hampered by a history of knowing too much. So I value payments knowledge. I value enterprise domain expertise. However, it can also hold you back. And I'm going to go to Joe in a minute. One thing I find interesting, and I'd like to hear your comment in, in a minute on this, Mike, I know several people that are VCs, 
um, that I admire quite a bit, that I think are incredibly sharp, that came out of the fintech community, that think Stripe's the most overvalued company in the world. I don't have that. I don't know. So, Joe, I'm going to give you the last word on this topic, and then we're going to move into the next one. So, Joe, go ahead. So, I think that Stripe has done some incredible things. I said that, I said that to get started, you're right. They didn't have the fear of the existing technology. However, I would hazard a guess that they hired a few experts along the way since then and on their march up to whatever billions that they're worth. That's my first comment. The second comment is a couple other things. That they are lipstick on a pig, right? They are still beholden to the, the existing payments infrastructure. They're still beholden to the cost of liquidity that the banks have to hold or all the KYC Risk. And while Stripe isn't public, Square is. And I'll tell you right now that they made, you know, $49 billion last year. And about two thirds of that had to go back to the credit card companies. And as a result is, has impeded their growth into international markets as the U.S. has become much more saturated. But in order to get to where you need to, whether it's because, you know, you need some sort of appreciation. I don't think you need the in-depth knowledge, but I'm not that old. I do know the industry. There's an appreciation of what's come before you. Why did it come before you? Doesn't mean you do it that way, but you say, this is how you solve that problem a different way. And you work with the clients. And you also, one of the biggest things I see fintechs or tech startups doing is they discount publicly, privately, the knowledge of the predecessors, typically at banks, who've been doing this for 30 years. I, as part of our three, the best experience, that's how I ended up at IBM. Uh, my boss and my other colleague, they were my clients. They're some of the smartest, most genuinely interested and passionate people about technology and banking come from these banks. So the worst thing we can do is just say, sorry, I'm not interested. So let's take that and pivot into banking because we're going to move to the next topic. And thank God y'all didn't agree. Thank God. Dean actually jumped across the table. We got it on film. It was fantastic. But he was going for the bullet bourbon because that's what Dan's like. <laughs> Guilty. Uh, let's talk about J.P. Diamond, all right, who for some reason is now the de facto voice for banking. I, w- I would raise my hand and say that in the U.S., who now has this passion of talking about how stupid Bitcoin is. Um, even though he says, I will not talk about it again, I think yesterday or the he day before, talking about he keeps it. talking. This is like me being married, right, to my ex-wife when she says, we're not going to talk about this anymore. <laughs> and then, oh, my God, we start talking about it again. He, I believe yesterday, came back and said, Bitcoin's a fraud. It don't want to end well. If you're stupid enough to buy Bitcoin, you're going to pay the price of it. Bitcoin's at, I just looked, Bitcoin in U.S. dollars is 5600 and $20 today. That's, yeah, well, this ties back into the former, the former conversation. Yes. I think we're missing the point. If you look at 1990, right, you had HTTP and SMTP, which brought millions of really smart people in to try and figure out new ways of moving information around. The exact same thing is going on in financial services as a result of Bitcoin. So it's not about Bitcoin as a currency. It's not about Bitcoin as an asset. It's about the different mindset of talent that's coming in to change industries. So what do you think is up with Diamond Honest? Because he's not stupid, right? He's got, and yeah, I'm definitely going to come to you, Joe. He's got Amber Belde. He's got, that's not like they haven't invested on the blockchain side. So I'm curious, uh, Joe, what do you think is up I think that Bitcoin did a terrible thing. It showed people, particularly my generation and younger, who've watched our parents go through the financial crisis, that you didn't need a bank to make money. You can use your computer. Now, whether that's a sound investment is a separate story. I mean, my father has given me all sorts of advice on that. Uh, He generally agrees with um, Mr. Diamond. But suddenly, it became a not, you can't do that, or can I do it? It's, well, why not? Why can't I send it? Oh, because of X, OFAC regulations, because of X, Y, and Z. Um, not, and I think that's scary. I mean, anytime something like this happens, it's the rice bowl effect, right? Yeah. It means that if I have my part of the rice bowl, in order to give me to have it, someone else is lose it. You are right, right? Jamie Dimon is, uh, and a lot of financial institutions are arguing against this stuff because it's reducing their hold on the economy. Well, it's it, it's yes, not, it's no, not just that it's reducing from- its hold because actually this and you know we're doing work with central banks, G20 central banks, so we we could have a whole podcast about working on central bank digital currency and the the access and the power it can provide. But it's actually no, it's the fact that for example, 
two years ago, it, was, it would be unheard of for you not to go raise money from a VC. Oh God, if we do ICOs, I'm going to shoot myself ICOs. in the head right now. I don't want to talk about them. And, Please don't. But, but it's just, there's a new way. There's a whole new way of people making money that they didn't have before or skills that people are paying, you know, getting a blockchain developer, they can, you know, the number of times that one on our team tells me he's overpaid. I'm like, really? I mean, it's market demand. So here, I got to know, because we have a room full of people in the industry and I'm actually going to start with Hannah. Hannah, where are you? Do you own any Bitcoin? I do not own any bad. Ollie, do you own any Bitcoin? I own three. You own three Bitcoin? I own three. Michael, do you own any Bitcoin? I don't own any Bitcoin. Mike, do you own any Bitcoin? I do. And okay. a couple of other currencies. So we're going to put it over here then. Interesting. Do you own any Bitcoin? Do you yes, own? and Ethereum. Okay, so I'm going to go to the wealth person in the room. April, do you own yes. any Bitcoin? Yes. Interesting. I already know Joe's answer, and I know my answer. By the way, let's, let's stop for a second. Yeah. Your whole focus is in... Not your whole focus, but a large part of what you do is around wealth management, which we'll yeah. talk about a little bit later. So I am curious to get your perspective on this. So I would say the way I look at Bitcoin, the way I look at Ethereum, the way I look at this whole fintech, whatever that means, is that everything is a fad. And I don't know why people don't understand that. Uh, you know, we've seen a million technologies come and go in my lifetime, being the elder stateswoman, not statesman here. And so, you know, I remember when, uh, you know, the Wangword processor was here and that's not here anymore. The IBM PC, uh, you know, technology just comes and goes, but it paves the way for the next one. When I think about Bitcoin or Ethereum, for that matter, I think it's digital currency and it's modern money. And I get excited about that. Will Bitcoin be the ultimate in terms of digital currency? I would say no, because rarely is the first one. It, but it really doesn't matter because all it all it really does is create a marketplace and uh, it creates um, you know excitement on both sides, right? For understanding what can be in terms of financial services and fintech. So here's what I'd like to do, right? Because we do have to go to a break in a minute. So what I what I do find interesting is the comment that you had made earlier, Mike, right? About bringing incredibly intelligent people into our space, and I'm going to say our space. To question the way things have been done. Right, which is incredibly important. It really makes no difference because IBM wouldn't be selling consulting services if their clients weren't questioning how do we realign for the future. But here's what I like, and and, and we we need to give Joe a shout out because we allowed Hannah into our flat, even though she's still drinking water from IBM. So we have to talk about their new product launch. So Joe, I'm giving you your 30 second commercial right now. What is the new announcement you had at Cybos? Uh, we've launched our new multi-asset single network ledger, starting with payments and FX. So using digital currency, starting with the Stellar network and Lumens to provide the bridge asset to do um, payments into and out of emerging markets, starting with the South Pacific. Uh, we've already found that it has added extreme amounts of resiliency, great positive response from central banks there, and as well as actually unleashed a whole new level of creativity in new products such as life insurance and so forth. I would want on the digital asset, um, I want to highlight why we chose Lumens versus XRP or Bitcoin, because those are the really the only two that would have worked. Bitcoin would have been a non-starter. Um, one, it's primarily mined in China. Um, our clients are not there. Um, and I'll just leave it there. Uh, the second one is that XRP from an ownership standpoint is opaque and it was, would have been hard for us to, you know, while we've done work with Ripple and will continue to do so. In fact, they're integrated with one of our platforms, uh, FTM. We did not know how we could go without, when we talk about transparency without having an asset we use that was transparent. Lumens is managed by a nonprofit. All of the ownership is public. It's transparent and to us, particularly going to bunches of banks around the world, seemed, you know, like the only option. And from a scalability and consensus mechanism, we felt that it was for our purposes the best. But I felt it was important to highlight that. So here's what I like, right? The liberal in me, Dion's happy because we're both with the, everyone that follows Dion in, on Twitter. If you don't know he's liberal, oh my God. I'm, I'm actually I'm moderate. No, you're not. So anyways, <laughs> he's moderate. Good God. I know that. Yeah. Yeah, no it, compliance we'll move right past that. <laughs> our, our, so, our, our view on society, right, and using technology for good is what I am extremely thrilled about. And this gets back to your comment, Mike, about bringing brilliant minds into the space in the industry. So exactly what Joe was just talking about with IBM, we just interviewed the CEO of Ripple, and he was basically talking about the same thing. The program that they've done with Bill Gates 
right, on a financial inclusion and market will bring them to bring them in. That's what thrills my soul is that we're bringing incredibly bright minds that in the past would have skipped this industry to create the next Uber for dog walking, which there actually is, by the way, I think it's called WAGS. But what I love is bringing the bright minds into the industry to address real world problems, right? And thinking outside of North America, when we look in Asia, when we look in Africa, the leapfrogging effect. That's what makes me happy. I think we can all agree on that. And this is a great place to take a break and hear from our sponsors and refresh drinks. Go get drinks. Dion, 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 get the cake out. What's that? Get those cakes out. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Welcome back to our first ever FinTech in a flat show. Ollie Judge, best name ever still for this show. We want to thank our sponsors. All right, quickly, before we get back into the show, I want to say, and we have to say this every time, you've heard this a million times, but we do mean it. We never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the last week. But don't forget, you can head over to FinTechInsiderNews.com to read more about the stories we've discussed and many more besides. And in this show, we're going to give you some links to the folks that are here because I think they're going to carry the, the conversation on maybe in written format, knowing Mike and the loss of his voice. He might have some commentary on some of the stuff we talked about. You can also sign up to join the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com with everyone on our podcast and other fantastic names from the fintech world. Tell us what you think about what we discussed this week. You can do that by following us on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders on Twitter or look for us on Facebook. All right, jumping back in. April, girl from Detroit like me. Wealth management, which by the way is interesting because you got into that industry in 2008 with some interesting times going on in the world. That's what you decided from a marketing side and a wealth management side to focus your practice. Why in 2008 was that the decision? 2008 was really a seminal time for financial services. Uh, everything couldn't remain the same and I saw it as a real opportunity for big brands, small brands, to really differentiate themselves. I was tired of looking at the same ad from every wealth management firm and every bank about their services with a picture of a lighthouse, a couple on the beach, and, you know, there was just really one entry point, and that's what it looked like. So uh, that's what I saw as a huge opportunity for people to really differentiate themselves. So here's what I find interesting about wealth management. I spent the 90s in wealth management, by the way, working for Northern Trust. So you started this in 2008, we're about 10 years now, a decade has gone by, and I love this. A study came out, focused on the US, that said 86% of advisors are male, 43% are over the age of 55. So basically a bunch of old guys that look like me are the advisors, and yet we're going through a wealth shift, right? Yep. Actually, it's moving, actually gender-wise, right? Yep. So I started my business really around three pillars that I saw intersecting uh, based on my experience and my knowledge. That was wealth, the wealth transfer that you alluded to, next gen. I have two millennial kids and saw the way they consume products and services was very different. And then uh, technology. I've been in technology since the late 80s, and I knew that those three things would intersect and everything would go crazy. So are we actually getting any better, though? We kept talking about fintech and making, getting, Mike, your point, getting incredibly bright minds, right, focused into this space. So when it comes to wealth management, here's, here's my, my take on this, right? One, I just turned 50 this year, so I have my AARP card, just like Mike and Dion just went to take a drink. So obviously, maybe there's a side of this table, and April's like, oh my God, I'm drinking this, and Joe's on her phone. So this side of the room, we all have our <laughs> AARP cards. <laughs> Damn it, Joe. But we all know that we have a financial crisis about to hit us in the U.S. because the majority of our generation, the four of us, haven't saved squat. I mean, they haven't, and you know that. There's a very few, right? So the retirement age 
People, you go to Walmart and you and it's and it's horrible because the reality is people are gonna have to work. And for it's the so rest easy of their life. to spend now. Well, I agree. So it's not even a question of you know you spend way faster than your paycheck comes in. So you ha- you need like a master's in calculus and whatever to just you know figure out. Thank God we have the tools that we do to figure out if this then that. We're kind of like a bank in that regard. You know, it's even harder to figure out. You know, if my bill comes due at this day, will I have cash in my account to pay it? And then guess what? It takes four days for that account to show up. I actually found it was faster to write myself a paper check and deposit it than move between my two bank accounts from two different American institutions. Well, Mike said this walking in. You said it'd be easier for you to send money to London by buying a ticket to London and flying there and handing them the cash. I mean... If you FedEx it, you can track a bag bag of cash. It's true. So here's, here's what I find interesting. Because on the flip side of that, I have four kids. I say that every show. Because all I think about now is college, 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 and student loans. So on the flip side of that, we've got our generation, our, the right side of the table, that hasn't really saved, right? The wonderful 401k that barely anybody contributed to, and Dion took yet another drink when I said that. Um, so we have that looming crisis. And at the same time, we have a lot of kids that are through student debt and student loans, second highest debt category in the U.S., behind a mortgage. So I'm going to get back to fintech. And Mike, I'll ask you, you invest in this, and Dion, you do too, but I'll start with you, Mike. Are there companies out there that you look at and go, all right, that there actually are solving a problem, or one that you look at and you would say, I'd raise them up and say, that's not a bad one? Well, we've, we've invested in uh, easily a dozen companies in the savings, wealth management, et cetera, space. Um, I think, you know, there was some hope a couple of years ago that robo-advisors would work. A tremendous amount of money has gone into robo-advisors in terms of venture capital, yet there's still relatively little assets under management in those companies. It's a long-term play, right? The reality it's, is for them to be revenue it's, positive. It's, it's, it's much longer than they thought it was going to be because creating the trust and all of that is there. So I think wealth is one of those places where it's there isn't a better area of financial services for collaboration between fintechs folks who understand what new customer experiences need to look like and feel like and the trust of large wealth management firms. Well, don't you think, yeah, but don't you think large companies like Fidelity, right? The robo-advisor came out. If I look at US, UBS, I look at Fidelity, yeah, I look at some of the other players, all, all it was easy customer, for them to make it a is, But all their customer experiences still suck. Well, yeah. If you look at the asset shift, where did it go? Who's grown the most? No, 1%. No, Vanguard. Oh, you're talking about assets. Passive. I'm sorry. Yeah. The most arm has gone under Vanguard. Why? Assets under management. Uh, sorry, assets under management for your for your less fintechy audience. Assets under management has shifted to Vanguard because the passive works, right? Whether it's robo or a human, the passive asset investment is working very well for people. Why is that? Lower fees, less friction. What I would say, and I'm quoting a VC in the Valley who I won't name because I'm not sure he'd want to be, but. His theory, and I agree with it, is fintechs have very narrow focus but reduce friction. Legacy players have a very wide path but have high friction. The perfect is where we meld those two. Reduce the friction, increase the offering. That's where the future lies, and it's a process. Hey, Dion, do you know anything about that hybrid advice in the World Wealth Report that was announced a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> yeah, but April, I talked to you yesterday, right? Yeah. You had come to Cybos and you're looking around, and you were looking at this is the massive banking conference. Yes. You were looking at the agenda, and you're like, where the hell is the wealth management or saving, or anything along those lines. You right. couldn't find anything tied to that. That I thought was crazy. I almost lost my mind because <laughs> uh, really in terms of global, if I think about financial services, we are in, you know, we talked about the wealth transfer. That's $32 trillion being transferred intergenerationally. That makes everybody or should make everyone sit up straight. And now instead of just talking about it, it's actually happening. You can see these assets being transferred intergenerationally. You have another dynamic going on there, which is to women. Unfortunately for the men on the other side of uh, to my left, um, you know, women do live longer and women are the ones that are the wealth holders and women are the ones making financial decisions for their family. So to add to the, the stats that you were giving earlier, Sam, you have 15% of financial advisors that are women, yet today 50% 
of wealth holders are women driving these decisions. So there's a huge gap and a disconnect there. And uh, women also have a high appetite for digital, much higher than men. So all of these things are not playing right and messaging to the right people. They're just mass marketing out there uh, without any regard to who the end consumers might be. And that's one of the things I think that really needs to change up. Another statistic I just want to throw out, which is 75%, and probably everybody knows this and they haven't really thought deeply about it, 75% of widows change financial advisors because they have no relationship with their husband's financial advisor. And 98% of next-gen wealth inheritors also change advisors. I don't know about your kids. My kids don't really listen to me. There's another completely different angle to this. So before I, one of the reasons I even got into blockchain was that I was actually uh, in consulting around wealth management and I did a ton of research uh, around trust accounting systems, trust management systems, and the integration of custodians. Um, One, experiencing this myself, the, the ability to even move money between two an account that was a trust versus a regular one, it was between this fidelity. I mean, things have changed. It's just that it becomes so complicated. But even more importantly is that I looked at the trends around resident, uh, not resident, independent advisors. And what ends up happening is it's so expensive from a compliance standpoint to actually maintain your independence that a lot of them end up going to the big wire houses, which means that they end up being forced to peddle whatever products are actually from those broker dealers. And just thinking back to, not that even more so, I think even in the, especially in the wake of the crisis, people are going to be much more critical of what am I putting in my portfolio and why are you selling it to me? And, you know, hopefully there's also better education around that. I think that, you know, one, things like blockchain, as we have our solutions, provide the ability to have new types of capital creation and potentially wealth management products are just going to change to accommodate that. But also, you know, I know my generation, and I'm particularly into data and understanding, they're going to be like, well, you know, I care where my sunglasses go- come from and my food. I'm going to care where my, you know, bonds come from, too, particularly if, you know, it may be, you know, I've heard some buzzwords, so I'm going to say a subprime mortgage, which goes back to the whole question around Bitcoin versus some other shady synthetic product that I don't understand. So I'm talking to a company that shall remain nameless where they take a bunch of data and do portfolio balancing based on exactly that. What do your care abouts as an individual? What are the market factors? And we're looking to co-develop a product with them for this exact reason, because people are more sophisticated in one way and not in another. And the wealth transfer is the other part. The wealth transfer, and April, you've beaten this drum and I couldn't agree more, massive wealth transfer. I have a friend who's a broker. And as he says, I'll work with you to make you broker. You know, the fact is- Maybe you define a broker. What is (laughs) a broker? Well, the RIA is something we're looking at right now. What's interesting about registered independent advisors is it's a shifting sand because people are like, what is the value add? Why do I do this? Where is the wealth transfer? So my friend, he had a dentist. He took over his dad's business. As I like to tell him, you stole your father's business when he became ill. That was very nice of you. He now manages you know, 180 million in, in arm mm-hmm. assets under management. He's taken that. He took a dentist whose son said, I get it. I know my dad trusted you. I want to put everything in gold. He then made him sign a letter that said, I abdicate all responsibility. I can't advocate for this move that you're about to do. I'm out. Good luck to you. Gold did what it did. But the point being, his relationship was with his father, not with this dentist's son who didn't earn the wealth and didn't know what to do with it. Now... People are going, well, okay, that wasn't very bright. Let's do something smarter. Let's build tools that do a balanced portfolio. Maybe it's partly Vanguard. Maybe it's active investing. Maybe it's social investing. Maybe it's, I don't want anything to go into oil shale, right? Or whatever the case may be. So you're getting these new set of tools, some automated, some not. I agree with the concierge solution, which is I want a person to have access to a bunch of tools to be super smart. It's not the one size fits all. That's the That's main exactly takeaway message. But isn't that, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that the, the concept of what FinTech allows us to do when you take that with the data and everything else to be able to drill down to that concierge? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I most, the most interesting areas is yeah. when you're using these tools to empower an individual who can then focus on gathering the needs in a, in a human fashion, not yeah. in a, a, a form, you know, online fashion, and then decide, figuring out what are the right products and services to offer that individual yeah. given those needs. Relationship is important. Trust is important. But the tools have to advance to allow, you know, if a millennial is very data driven, yeah. they need to see the data behind the recommendation. Here's the one thing I found, and, and, and April, I'm gonna give you the last word on this because it's your, your, it's what your passion is. Here's the thing I've been very interesting every time I have talks like this with everybody in this space. We're incredibly passionate about it. We drill down, we talk about that. When I talk to my friends that have nothing to do with this industry, they are bored shitless. Like, I don't care. I don't, you know, money's a tough conversation. Money is a tough conversation, period. And people don't like to have it. And so the easier you can make that money conversation, whether it's around education. And, you know, this is my main message that we help banks, wealth management firms and fintechs really talk about is how do you talk about money and how do you enter in that conversation? I sent my oldest son graduated from college to a financial advisor. (laughs) He sends me a text message during his interview with the financial advisor. This guy wants me to use a robo advisor and I don't know shit about investing. Why does he want me to use a robo-advisor? Why does he think I'm here? So what I see really happening is this over-segmentation to millennials only want this, Gen X wants this, boomers want this, without allowing the marketplace to ferret itself out and people to become people and say, whatever Dion wants could be different from what Mike wants, different from what Joe wants, different from what April wants. And I think that's what will define success in the future. I can 100% tell you what Dion wants doesn't align with anyone else I know. (laughs) So we'll stop. I'm a segment of one. I'm proud of that. No, no, no. Just (laughs) woof. All right. You'd break any algorithm that tried to do that with you. Let's let's talk about the last one, because this one is actually passionate to me because I'm stuck with it. It's October. We've already talked about we're, the, you know, we're at Cybos. Literally, we have Cybos Intertribe, um, Swell going on, the Ripple Conference. Fintech Festival in Singapore. Fintech Festival in Singapore. There's a conference going on in Chicago right now. I don't even know the Fintech name of it. Fintech Festival. Don't even make me oh cry. God. Who the hell names this crap? We've got, um, we've got uh, Money 2020 next week. So Money 2020 came out it's 2018 we're almost to 2020 so obviously they have to rename it uh they sold the conference i believe for 100 million 250 250 a rolodex and logistics 250 250? mil yeah we're all in the wrong business that's a separate subject that's a podcast unto itself shut that podcast shut this podcast down and (laughs) let's figure out our business plan mike's gonna finance it let's go we're ready absolutely depressed that you said that because i didn't know it was 250 all right so on that i think conferences are broke Personally, especially in this industry, so broken. Broken. They're like 1.8 million. They're not broke. (laughs) They're not broke because they sold for 250 million. The entrance fee for this conference that we're at Cybos. Anyone want to guess? It's 3,000. More. It's like 3,800 dollars to come to this. Yes. I don't go to a conference unless I'm speaking. No, I don't go paying 3,800 dollars. No, we don't go to a conference unless we're speaking. To attend. Okay, so first question, and we'll come back to how do we recommendations to fix it. I asked Dominic Ventura, he heads up uh, FinTech for US Bank. I love Dominic, very clever individual. And I said, what do you do? What do you look for? All right, a large bank, how do you do this? He goes, I look on the edges. I completely get out of financial services. I I go to VR, I go to DARPA, I go to um, uh, gaming, I go to nothing that I expect. And he goes, and the smaller, the better. That's what I look for. Um, I found that to be an interesting comment. Right, because the reality is, South by Southwest has become parody. TED Talks have become a parody. The industry as a whole has become. Yet we're all still going. By the way, so what do you, I'll ask you two, Mike? What do you look for? Because you, man, oh God, you're buried in this. Um, Obviously, well, networking. I'm going to guess. You no, know, that's it. Right. It's that's it. it's conference. You know, I don't go to a conference thinking I'm going to learn anything from someone who's on a stage. I think I'm unless it's Sam Hall. Unless it's Sam Hall, of course. Which is complete um, BS. As well. I, I, no, so I go on. because I'm going to learn something in the hallway conversations, right? I'm 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 a lobby con. We go to conferences nonstop. Most bankers get one a year. Okay, what are they going to get out of it? That's one a year. Good point. Right? Maybe they're going to party, Joe. Well, yeah, I was, no, as somebody who travels work. all the time, uh, we were. I was talking to someone and. And someone was like, oh, aren't you glad it's in Toronto? It's so close. And they're looking at us like, 
I wanted to go someplace fun. Yeah, exactly. Where, where, when San yeah, Francisco? I, I asked you that. that. I said, "What's your what?" When you look at this, what would you say? And you said location, which is a very honest answer, yes. and made me smile. And actually, everyone that's worked with me in my career goes, "You're exactly the same way." April, thumbs down. And what do you want? So what I want is I do still look for, and you know, call me Pollyanna. I'm still looking for a learning experience. I am all about the networking, seeing people, doing all of that. I agree. There's nothing better than in person, as digital as we can all be. I think what conferences serve is the purpose of being in person, but I love parlor meetings, smaller meetings, smaller conferences, and orchestrate those for my clients also, because that's where business gets done. I don't think any business gets done at a conference like this. I don't think anything new happens. I don't think anything happens except the conference organizers make a lot of money, and we do this podcast. Here's what I find, and I find interesting, is... I have I have two networks in my life, right? I have the people I know and the personal ones, and I have people that are social, digital, that I've never met in my life, never been in the same room, right? Other than Hannah, sorry, Hannah. Everyone else that I've been in the same room has at one point or another, but it's actually come through conferences, which is amazing. That's why, I, okay, this is gonna be really sad. Again, unless I'm on the stage, I don't go to anything. I find that rather sad. I do, and I'll tell you why. The way I look at because you're you weird. No, money. I'm a fan of Money 2020, and here's why. First time I went to now, when I get to Money 2020, my LinkedIn network comes to life. I agree. That's invaluable to me, and there's nowhere else I get that. Saves me five to eight business trips a year. Yeah, that's but that has not nothing clear. to do with doing business. That has nothing to do with the purpose of the conference. Let's say I had a big party in Las Vegas, and I invited your LinkedIn network. Yes. Right? I will eventually do business with them. I'm not right? going to sign contracts on the floor, but that's no, but not why I'm there. All of these exhibitors are paying. If you go back to what is a conference, let's go back to the whole idea, right? It's marketing. They're expecting to yeah, have yeah. sales come out of this conference. Okay. And that I happen. had a conversation with a major French bank here who I've known for years, but the conversation got real to a specific project here. Agreed. Agreed. What more could you but ask? But it could not necessarily happen around being paying, uh, you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred fifty thousand for a booth, right? We could have a networking conference. Let's say we all go back and we just have like a speed dating or something like yeah, that. I think that these, actually these conferences give the industry and the people doing deadlines because there is a tendency to be I like, I, you can go on That's forever, good. but we got it done because we were like, come hell or high water, we are announcing this at Cybos. And the next week is May 2020, so one or two weeks. And it's a meaningful event for the clients that we were getting on board. Without that, what is it? It's a tweet or whatever. There's, and, and you don't get the you don't get the joy. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's great walking around and people, people know about what I'm doing and that I, I'm the offering manager. They're like, oh, my God. And you know, then I run away because I don't like meetings. But I do like the attention for half a second. You know, no, but but you, you bring up a that. point. Forcing function is worth the price of admission. Sorry. Yes, it could, you know yeah. what, though? I, I didn't expect right. that to be an answer. That's and right. I'm very happy because that was a very good answer to force the deadlines for that. That's a good, we got to quit because that was really good. Oh, we're going to end on that note. Joe's like, yeah, I got it. All right. And then she's going to leave because she don't want to talk to anybody. All right. So we got to close out on that note. That wraps up our first ever FinTech in a flat show. Again, best name ever. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we have. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook or on a Fintech Insider page. If you like what you heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes. We only accept five stars. Everything else, just go to a different podcast. Until then, thanks for listening.